Now, friends, I'm coming to the 10th chapter of the book of Daniel. Chapter 10, and if you have your Bible open there at the 10th chapter, let me say that the last three chapters that we're coming to now, chapters 10, 11, and 12, are ordinarily considered one vision. And the theme here relates to the nation Israel in the immediate future and then in the latter days. We have here, for instance, a historical little horn and the little horn of the latter days. Now, these last three chapters should be treated as one vision. Some consider this last vision in the three chapters to be the greatest of all the visions of Daniel. Now, that may be true, but it certainly is a remarkable and a unique section. And there are certain features here which are different from all other chapters in Daniel, in fact, different from any section of the Word of God. And I'm going to examine, of course, each chapter separately as we come to this tenth one. And there's another, I think, outstanding feature that we should mention here. All was prophetic when given here. But at the present time, much has been fulfilled, belongs to history. And a great deal is still prophetic, that is, in the future, to be fulfilled in the last days. And I must confess, it's rather difficult to draw a line of demarcation and to say which is on one side and which is on the other side. But this is a method that we find running through the Word of God, and that has been the double reference, which refers to that which is local and refers to that which is in the distant future. And I think, though, the fulfillment of that in the immediate future, which has been fulfilled literally, gives us the key for the future. Now, here in chapter 10, we have the preparation for the last vision by the prayer of Daniel and the appearance of a heavenly messenger. And we have first the time, place, and preparation of Daniel for the vision. Now, I think the key to understanding this chapter and the other two chapters is this. It's found here in verse 14. Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days, for yet the vision is for many days. That is, it'll be a long time before it will be fulfilled. And it concerns Daniel's people, Israel. And I surely hope you won't get the church all mixed up in this section, because it's made very clear by Daniel that he's talking about his people here. And then there's something else that's unique about this chapter here. And we're moving into a very eerie section. Maybe you'd call it weird, strange. The veil of the spiritual world is partially and momentarily going to be pulled aside and let you get a look. There's nothing here to satisfy the morbid curiosity of an idle spectator. There's enough here, however, to produce a beneficial and sobering effect upon the humble believer 
and it was the effect that it had upon Daniel, it ought to have that effect upon us, not just to satisfy idle curiosity. And we're going to see here that there is an intrusion made into the spiritual realm. It's going to introduce the believer to the order of angels, both good and bad, both fallen and unfallen. And we are going to see here something of the kingdom of Satan that is about us today. There's been a great deal said about that recently and written about it. And I think a great many people take a little fact and they make a whole lot of fiction out of it. We're going to try to stick to the facts that are here. And we're going to see the order of demons, that they are in orders and that the angels are in ranks and positions and orders. That's exactly what Paul said in Colossians 1.16. He says, "...for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible." whether they be thrones, our dominions, our principalities, our powers, all things were created by him and for him. Now, he makes a separation of God's creation, not only that which is in heaven and that which is in earth, but that which is visible and that which is invisible. And there's a great realm today that's invisible. We are discovering that there are great many things in this world of energy and this world about us that we know very little about even today. But we are finding here that he created, we're told, thrones. That would be the archangels like Michael and Gabriel and other special envoys. And then there are dominions where there are cherubims and seraphims. And then their principalities, they were generals, they are the brass. And then their powers, and in that they're private, such as serve as guardian angels. Now, some from the rank of principalities, that is, generals, they fell away to Satan. And we're told that in Ephesians six twelve. For well, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And that is against principalities. Now, Satan has his angels organized according to rank. Just as one army is set over against another, there are generals on both sides. Well, his principalities, his generals, they seem to have the oversight of nations. There are powers, and they are privates. They are demons who want to possess human beings. They are rulers of the darkness of this world. They are demons who have charge of Satan's worldly business. And I think he has a lot of monkey business going on down here. And then there's spiritual wickedness in the heavenlies. They are demons who have charge of religion. You may not realize that, but Satan's department of religion is the largest department of all. He's in the business of religion. A great many think he's in the opposite. Absolutely not. Now, these two groups are in the arena of this universe that we live in, and it comes to this earth at times. 
and they're engaged in a ceaseless warfare to capture here the souls of man. And this subject will be pursued farther now as we move into this chapter here. Now, first of all, we have the time, place, and preparation of Daniel for the vision. And I'm reading verse 1 of chapter 10 of Daniel. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. And the thing was true, but the time appointed was long, and he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. It was in the third year of Cyrus, and that was 534 B.C., and that was four years after the vision of the 70 weeks. And at this time, I think that Daniel was retired, no longer active. And a thing was revealed to Daniel. And it suggests, of course, a new mode of communication. And the thing, or the word, was true. But the time appointed was long. And that indicates that the final fulfillment was in the distance, not the immediate future. And he understands the thing, that is, the word, and he had understanding of the vision. Now, it reveals that this vision was made crystal clear to Daniel. Now, verses 2 and 3 of chapter 10, and I'm reading, "...in those days I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all." till three whole weeks were fulfilled. He didn't take a bath for three weeks. And he says here, the cause of Daniel's mourning and exercise of soul is not for us to see. It was the third year of Cyrus. Now, in his first year, Cyrus had made a decree which permitted Israel, you will recall, to return to the land of Palestine. And two full years had elapsed, and only a paltry few under Zerubbabel had returned. And actually, those under Ezra and Nehemiah hadn't even gone back. And this was a rigorous time for Daniel. It brought grief to the heart of this aged prophet of God, for he's now a man past 90 years of age, and he was following a lifetime practice. He was retired now from active participation in office, and evidently having served through the first year of Cyrus, now, after retirement, he gave himself entirely to the service of God. And he fasted three weeks because he did not get an immediate answer to his prayer. That was the reason. Verse 4, I'm reading now, And in the four and twentieth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, which is Hedekel. Now, the place is located. The great river Hedekel is the Tigris River, and the time is the month Nisan, and it's April the 24th that is given to us. We're certainly being given dates now. And this is something difficult for the critic to wrestle with, because whoever wrote this were dealing with dates, and they don't give a late date for Daniel. Now, he's given a vision, first of all. The vision of Christ glorified. And I think that Daniel saw the transfiguration before either Moses or Elijah. You see, there had always been three representatives, Moses, 
represented the law. And the thing was that Elijah represented the prophets. But Daniel represented a very particular group of those that had been in exile. And now he's given it ahead of time for his encouragement. Will you notice now? Then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of euphaz. His body also was like the burl. His face was as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. Now, this is a new method of revelation. No longer does Daniel see an image or a vision of beasts or weeks, but he sees a certain man. Now, who is the certain man? Now, some very excellent expositors hesitate to identify him, and they dodge the dilemma by saying he was a heavenly visitor. That's generalizing, all right, and you couldn't miss that very far. But that's not exegesis of the passage. We believe him to be Christ. When the Lord Jesus was on earth, he gave many parables, some of which concerned the activity of a certain man. You remember how he would begin one of his parables? A certain man. Now, that certain man was generally God the Father or God the Son. And so in the verse before us, the certain man is identified further by his person and dress. And what a striking similarity there is to the vision of Christ after his ascension into glory is seen by John in the book of Revelation. And now let me just turn to Revelation 1.12 and begin reading. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned I saw one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, girt about the paps with a golden girdle, his head and his hairs, a white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were as a flame of fire, his feet like undefined brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. His countenance was as the sun shining in his strength. Now, that's a vision of Christ. And I believe Daniel saw Christ, not in his pre-incarnation, but he saw him as the post-incarnate Christ in his office of priestly intercessor and judge and great shepherd of the sheep, because after all, Israel as well as the church are called his sheep. Moses and Elijah were present at the transfiguration of Jesus recorded in the Gospels. Daniel was not present. Why? He'd already witnessed the transfiguration, and this is the record. Now, notice the effect it had on Daniel. And I don't think any ordinary angel or archangel would have had this effect on him. Verse 7, And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quake and fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Now, others were with Daniel, but he alone saw the vision. Now, it's evident from the many recorded incidents that only the Holy Spirit can identify the Lord Jesus Christ for man. 
And that's what he's doing here. You remember, the Lord Jesus said, He shall glorify me. You shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. And Paul had a similar experience. You remember on the road to Damascus? And the man which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth. When his eyes were open, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand, brought him into Damascus. He was blinded. He'd seen the glorified Christ. Now I go back to the eighth verse here of the tenth of Daniel. Therefore I was left alone and saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me, for my comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. Now he was left alone, and that is a marvelous, wonderful experience of the man of God. Every man of God wants to be left alone. You know, many have followed eagerly and joyfully in his train. Abraham left Ur, finally his kindred, and he was alone with God yonder at that altar. Moses was sent to the backside of the desert of Midian, and at the burning bush he was alone with God. Elijah was disciplined by the brook Kirit, and God was with him. Jeremiah walked a lonely path, but God was with him. John the Baptist was in the desert alone, and God was with him. Paul had two years of solitary confinement on the same desert, and that was God's way of being with him. And the apostle John was exiled on the lonely Isle of Patmos, and God was with him. You know, today, so many people, oh, if we can all come together and have a great prayer meeting or have a great meeting together... My friend, have you ever tried being alone? That's where God's going to meet you, not in the crowd. When you're alone with him, why don't you take the word of God and go off alone with him? It'll do you a lot of good. I love this radio. Someone said to me, Dr. McGee, are you speaking to an audience when you make those tapes? And I said, no. And they said, well, you just seem to me like you're talking to me. Well, I said, if you want to know the truth, I am, but I'm alone. And that's the one time I'm alone. I'm right now in the studio. All doors are closed. And I'm alone with God. I want you to know that. And it's wonderful, friends. And I think that's when God speaks to you. And I've come to the conclusion that it's a time like this that God's been able to use this weak bit of clay here to get out the Word of God that it goes out young and becomes effective. And I don't know how it does it, But I do know this, it's worth being alone with God. The ungodly and the unbeliever, they want to get to the nightclub. They're gregarious. They want to have a drink with somebody. They run in packs. They form mobs. They have a great group to protest something. They don't stand alone. Oh, to stand alone today. And that is a wonderful day. You know, Jacob tried to avoid it, but God pushed him in the corner. And that night, you'll recall that God wrestled with him at Peniel and God broke through and broke his leg in order to get that man. And Daniel is alone, and he's alone with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he's had this vision, and this is the vision, and he says, no strength is in me. It's had a tremendous effect upon him. 
Some of us need this experience. Verse 9, "...yet heard I the voice of his words. And when I heard the voice of his words, then was I in a deep sleep on my face, my face toward the ground." Now, Daniel apparently lapsed into unconsciousness. Now, I don't know how long he was there, but the Lord Jesus then left him. And when he came to, an angel had come to minister to him. Now, he's going to get an answer. He's had the vision now, that vision which would encourage him, of course. But now, there is sent a heavenly messenger And verse 10, I'm reading of the 10th chapter of Daniel. And behold, a hand touched me, which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. You see, apparently he was just sprawled down on the floor, wherever he was, just sprawled down there, not just on his all fours, but absolutely prone with the earth. The hand now touches him, the hand of a heavenly messenger. And this heavenly messenger apparently was sent by the post-incarnate Christ to answer Daniel's petition. Who could he be? Well, I have suggested Gabriel, since Gabriel had been the messenger on former occasions, and he was the messenger in the New Testament to make the first announcement. It could be here, or it could be just any other angel. But we are going to find out now something about him. Verse 11, He said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand upright, for unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. You see, Daniel at first was prone upon the ground. He was horizontal with the ground. And now he's brought up on his all fours. Now he's told to stand up. And again, he's reminded of the fact that he's a man greatly beloved. That's a nice reputation to have in heaven, by the way. And so he gets now up on his feet. Now we read verses 12 and 13 in the 10th chapter of Daniel. Then said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Now, for the first time, friends, a veil is lifted momentarily, and it reveals a heavenly warfare that is going on. It reveals that there's a great deal more about this universe that you and I live in than meets the eye. And there's a great deal more than we know today. And we ought not to try to know any more, though, than is revealed. But now let's see what we have here. It opens the unseen world to us. It reveals a conflict going on, the conflict of the ages between good and evil, 
light and darkness, between God and Satan. And it reveals that there are satanic forces and that there are heavenly forces. And what had happened was this. It seems very simple in a way, and yet it reveals a great deal. This angel says that he had been sent to answer Daniel's prayer. He said, from the very first day that you set your heart to understand and chasten yourself before God, your words were heard. And I was sent out as a messenger to answer. But on the way, my pathway was blocked and I couldn't get through to you. That's an amazing statement, is it not? Now, doesn't that throw some light on what Paul says to you and me in the sixth chapter of Ephesians? Verse 11, "...put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities." Now, here's principalities again. These different gradations of demons today. Principalities against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now, here again, there is that warfare. Maybe this explains the reason that your prayer and my prayer didn't get answered. Maybe this is the reason that prayer doesn't mean more to you and me than it does, and it ought to mean a great deal more, because actually prayer is fighting a spiritual battle all the time. That's exactly what prayer is. Paul made that very clear, that he was fighting that kind of a battle all the time, and he asked that they join him in prayer. He says in verse 30 of the 15th chapter of Romans, he says, Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit, that ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Now that word strive, we get our word agony from it. You're to agonize with me in prayer. You know, prayer has been made a sort of a light sort of thing today. Most of the prayers I hear are either very flowery or very theological. And I think we could do without both of them these days. Prayer is agonizing. It's getting through these barriers today that will release spiritual power. And this idea of getting up on Sunday morning and entertaining the Lord with flowery language... And it's all like hipsy-dipsy. It's a nice, sweet little thing. Are trying to be very profound and theological. Friends, we're fighting a spiritual battle today. And Daniel now is told by this angel, he said, Now, when you began to pray, God sent me to answer your prayer. But on the way, the prince of the kingdom of Persia stood against me. Now, who is he? Well, he's one of the minions of Satan, one of the demons. We've said before that Satan has his demons organized. God has his. And they're in gradations, like you'd be in the army. They're generals. And then there are colonels. And then there are lieutenants. And then there are second lieutenants and sergeants and so on. 
And apparently, this angel was outranked by the chief prince of Persia, and he couldn't get through. So he had to send back for reinforcements. In fact, Michael, the archangel, had to come to open up the way for him. Now, why would the way be blocked? Well, to begin with, Daniel is going to be given information here about the kingdom of Persia, first of all, as well as Greece. We'll see that when we get to chapter 11. And naturally, Satan didn't want that information gotten out. It was secret information, you see, and it was not to be revealed. It was not part of the Pentagon Papers. It was secret, very secret indeed. And he didn't want that information released. And now God wanted the information gotten through to Daniel. And so this angel is outranked, and he has to send for reinforcements. And then we find that reinforcements come, but there's still a problem there. And there had to be some matters settled. We're told, but lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Apparently, there was a conflict going on there. There needed to be some heavenly forces to help. Why? Well, the fact of the matter is, that's where Daniel is at this particular time. And it was about the time that he had the experience of being put in the lion's den. So you see, the Lord was active on his behalf without Daniel knowing anything about it at all. And we need to recognize today as believers that our warfare really is a spiritual warfare. And it's amazing how many times the devil cuts off, short circuits our prayer life. And one of the reasons today that public prayer and prayer meetings are so dead is because those that go there just go to say some pretty little prayers, and they do not realize that there's a battle going on, and there's a war that must be won, and they do not realize that at all. Listen to Paul again in Second Corinthians, the 10th chapter, beginning at verse 3. Listen to this. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Friends, the Christian life is a bigger undertaking than any of us ever dreamed that it is. Oh, that you and I might recognize how we need the power of the Holy Spirit today in our lives and how we need the presence of Christ today. There's a spiritual warfare going on, and some apparently don't seem to be conscious of it at all. Now I'm reading verse 14. He says, "...now I'm come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days." for yet the vision is for many days. Now, this is the key which opens the door to the understanding of the remainder of the book of Daniel. Now, there are three things for us to keep in mind from here on. It concerns thy people. 
Now, I think that we can dogmatically and categorically identify the subject of the prophecy as being Israel. Now, how anyone can say anything else is really beyond me. Then, actually, words mean nothing at all. Semantics and syntax are meaningless then. But we know now thy people means Israel. The second thing, in the latter days... Now, that places the final fulfillment in the period of the 70th week of Daniel we've already seen are the time of the great tribulation period. Now, that's important. The latter days places it at the very end. Now, the third thing, the vision is for many days. Now, that emphasizes the fact that a long period of time is involved not only in fulfillment, but long before the vision will be finalized so that we're going now to come to two parts of it. The historical, that is, it was prophecy when it's given. It's already been fulfilled and that which is yet to be fulfilled. Now, will you notice here we have in this last section, he's terrified by the appearance of this heavenly visitor. And Daniel is further assured and strengthened to understand the Scripture. Verse 15, I'm reading. And when he had spoken such words unto me, I set my face toward the ground, and I became dumb. And verse 16, And behold, one like the similitude of the sons of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke and said unto him that stood before me, O my Lord, by the vision, my sorrows are turned upon me, and I have retained no strength. It was having a tremendous effect upon Daniel physically, you can see. Now, verses 17 and 18. For how can the servant of this my Lord talk with this my Lord? For as for me, straightway there remained no strength in me, neither is there breath left in me, Then there came again and touched me one like the appearance of a man, and he strengthened me. When I hear people tell me today they've had a vision of an angel, and it doesn't seem to have affected them very much, I know by that they really didn't see an angel. It had a tremendous effect upon Daniel. Verse 19, And he said, O man greatly beloved, fear not, peace be unto thee, be strong, yea, be strong, When he'd spoken unto me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for thou hast strengthened me. Verse 20, Then said he, Knowest thou, wherefore I come unto thee? And now I will return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I'm gone forth, lo, the prince of Grecia will come. In other words, another angel comes that represents Greece. And he's got to get back to the battle, you see, that was going on. Verse 21, But I will show thee that which is noted in the Scripture of truth. And there is none that holdeth with me in these things, but Michael, your prince. Now, the angel turns Daniel to the Word of God. And he says here, noted means recorded. That which is recorded in the Scripture of truth. In other words, he's not going to hear or see anything that contradicts the Word of God. The Word of God, friends, is the only weapon available to the child of God for effective use today. And it is called the sword of the Spirit. 
and some of us just don't know how to use our swords. We ought to have sword drill more often to be able to use the Word of God. Now, friends, as we come to the 11th chapter here of the book of Daniel, we need to remind you that it's a continuation of chapter 10. Actually, we've already said that chapters 10, 11, and 12 all deal with the same vision. And this particular chapter, I think, is very important because it fills in some of the details of the 70 weeks of chapter 9, which concern Daniel's people. And it also fills in some of the details that had to do with that multimetallic image in chapter 2 and the wild beasts of chapter 7. So this chapter is quite important chapter. And we saw last time that apparently Satan hindered the angel in coming to give Daniel the answer because it did concern two of these nations that were all important as concerned Daniel's people. Now, the two nations were Persia and Grecia. They'll be identified for us in this chapter. And we are going to see here a marvelous arrangement and the program of prophecy that you'll find nowhere else. Another contribution I think that this chapter makes is that it bridges prophetically part of the gap between the Old and New Testaments. Actually, we speak today of this being a sort of a hiatus between the Old and New Testaments. It's a period of silence. Actually, that's not exactly accurate. The intertestament period was a time of Israel's greatest travail up to date. They suffered at both the hands of Syria and Egypt, and then, of course, later on of Rome. But that, of course, is suggested in the New Testament. But we find in this period the rise of a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, and he will be a type and an adumbration of the Antichrist who's yet to come. He is a member of the Seleucid family, and we'll identify him when we come to him in this chapter. And he was anti-Semitic and a persecutor of the Jews. He far exceeded any Pharaoh or Haman, or even a Hitler, or Russia today. He's been called the Nero of Jewish history, and he's been labeled the great profaner. Now, we are going to find, therefore, that there is in this chapter a tremendous break between what is actually historical and eschatological. What I'm trying to say is this, that when this chapter was given, everything was in the future, was prophetic. But part of it has been fulfilled, and we'll indicate that when we get to it. That makes this a very important chapter. Now, my first thought was, as I got into the book of Daniel, that when I got to this section, that I would give it, shall I say, a lick and a promise and go over it rather hurriedly and not deal with it in detail at all. 
And there was a reason for that. The reason is that this is rather complicated, and it is very remarkable, but it goes into prophecy a little deeper than the average person likes to go into prophecy. Most people today, they like the froth and the fuzz and the foam about prophecy, the exciting part, the sensational part and all of that type of thing. But really to dig down and get into what the Word of God really says, it's not something that the average person will do. But I've been encouraged in this by the response that we've had to Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, where I did go into a certain amount of detail. And the response has been good. And that's encouraged me now to continue on here. Now, if you find this particularly boring, maybe you could turn over and listen to some Christian music somewhere or maybe do something else. But if you really want to see one of the most remarkable prophecies in the Word of God, you follow along with us at this particular time. Now, we have here in the first 20 verses... The vision of chapter 10 continued. And this is historical. That is, it covers the period from Darius at the time the vision was given to Daniel to the division of the empire of Alexander the Great. And it bridges the gap from Media Persia over to Greece, from Asia to Europe, the transition of world power from one continent to another, from the east to the west. And that makes this especially important. And then because the nation Israel was caught like it was in a vice between these different powers at this time, and as we've indicated, it was a period of great suffering for these people. I doubt whether there's been up to the present any period that's been greater than this. Now, I begin reading at verse 1 of chapter 11 of Daniel. Also I, in the first year of Darius the Mede, even I stood to confirm and to strengthen him. Now, the speaker here is Gabriel, and the time is the same as in chapter 6. It was during this period that Daniel was cast into the den of lions. And you remember Darius tried in vain to deliver Daniel, yet he could say, Thy God whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. In other words, Gabriel confirmed Darius in his faith, and he also comforted and assisted Daniel at this time. And we hear Daniel say, My God hath sent his angel, and he hath shut the lion's mouth. So, historically, that is where this vision fits in. And it bridges now this inner testament between the testament, this gap. Verse 2, I'm reading, "...and now will I show thee the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than they all, and by his strength through his riches he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Now, from here through verse 34, 
I think is one of the most remarkable examples of pre-written history. This section is caused the destructive critic to demand a late date for the composition of the book of Daniel. Here are clear-cut statements of prophecy which have been literally fulfilled. Today, and I know I'm speaking to two groups of people, those who are liberal in theology, many of them listen to us, we're delighted to have them, and then those that are conservative. I am not seeking to try to turn any liberal, but I personally do not like the liberal to be called a liberal. For me, they're the most narrow-minded people, whether they be theologians or politicians. I've been rather amused and also almost angered, to tell the truth, to hear some of the so-called liberals in our government today, most of them are millionaires, and they have such marvelous programs for helping the poor. But who's paying for it? Are they paying for it? No. We're paying for it. We average people. They have the finest programs to increase our taxes, and their taxes are not increased. I don't like the idea of them being called liberals. Some One has called them the limousine liberals. That's a good name. Now, we have a same kind of group today among theologians. They like to speak of the fact that they are broad-minded. They don't have a narrow conception of Scripture. Now, let me ask you if this is narrow, as one of them right here in Southern California. He said to McGee, I listened to you on the radio sometime. He said that in a very condescending manner. I should have been honored by that. He made this statement. He says, you know, you accept prophecy as being reliable. And he used this book of Daniel. And I said to him, what authority do you have for rejecting the early date of Daniel and accepting a late date for Daniel? Well, he says, it's very simple. He says, we know that miracles are impossible and they do not happen. Therefore, if this was written beforehand, it would be miraculous. So it must have been written afterward. Now, I'd like to ask you, is that being narrow-minded and prejudiced and biased? And therefore, I don't expect to influence anyone that's a liberal. I merely say this, my friend, here is one of the most remarkable passages of Scripture, and a conservative scholarship can sustain the early date of Daniel, and that means you've got a miracle on your hand. That means here's something that is quite remarkable. Now, listen to this. He says here to Daniel, because Daniel won't be living much longer, you see. He died sometime during this period. And he says to Daniel, he says there are going to be three kings. Then there'll be a fourth one, four kings in all. And he said there are going to be notable kings. Well, after Cyrus which we saw mentioned in the 10th chapter, verse 1, there would be follow then four notable kings in Persia. Now, we can identify them today. Cambyses, 529 B.C., Pseudo-Smyrtus, 522 B.C., Darius Hystaspes, 
in 521 B.C. And finally, Xerxes, the fourth one, he is the one who invaded Greece in 480 B.C. He was defeated, and never again did Media Persia make a bid for world dominion. Xerxes is the Hagiris, we believe, in the book of Esther. And he was very rich, as the prophecy here said he would be. Now, verse 3, and I'm reading now, chapter 11 of Daniel. And a mighty king shall stand up that shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. Now, the mighty king here is Alexander the Great who came to power in 335 B.C. over the Greco-Macedonian Empire, and he put down Persia, and he assumed world dominion. I'm reading now verse 4. And when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven, and not to his posterity, nor according to his dominion which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up even for others beside those. Now, Alexander the Great was a world ruler, probably the greatest military strategist the world's ever seen. But he died an alcoholic in 323 B.C. Now, his own posterity did not inherit his vast kingdom. Four of his generals divided the empire into four geographical areas over which each ruled. Now, the division was roughly this. Cassander took Macedonia, and Lysimachus took Asia Minor, what is today modern Turkey. And Seleucus Nicator, he took Syria and a great deal of the Middle East. And Ptolemy took Egypt. Now, that's the four families. They eventually lost their kingdoms. They warred among themselves, as we shall see. But they lost their kingdoms when the Romans marched east. Now, I'm reading verse 5. And the king of the south shall be strong, and one of his princes, and he shall be strong above him, and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. Now, we are talking about the king of the south. South of what? Los Angeles or Chicago or New York? No. When the Bible speaks of the south, it's always south of Palestine. It's south of what we call Bible lands. It's south of the nation Israel. North is north of the nation Israel. Now, south then would be, of course, Egypt. And Ptolemy would be the king of the south. And it refers to him as the king of the south. And the one specifically mentioned here is evidently Ptolemy Legus. And after this, there was a gap in the historical record. Now, beginning with verse 6, and I'm reading again, "...and in the end of years they shall join themselves together, for the king's daughter of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the power of the arm, neither shall he stand." nor his arm, but she shall be given up. And they that brought her, and he that begat her, and he that strengthened her in these times. Now, the king of the north refers to the line of the Seleucidae. And this verse brings us up to about 250 B.C. Now, let me tell you some of the 
manipulation, some of the workings that went on in the courts of that day. And this is, according to history, fulfills this prophecy, which is quite literal. There was an alliance formed between these two warring families. Ptolemy Philadelphus, son of Ptolemy, Lagus, gave his daughter Berenice in marriage to Antiochus Theos of Syria. And Antiochus was already married to Laodice, whom he divorced. Then Ptolemy Philadelphus died. Then Antiochus Theos, he took back his first wife, Laodice. She in turn poisoned Berenice and her son, and she poisoned Antiochus Theos and put her son Seleucus Callinicus on the throne. My friend, there is some juggling around that took place in that day. It's interesting how all this is covered here in prophecy. Verse 7, and I'm reading, "...but out of a branch of her root shall one stand up in his estate, which shall come with an army. He shall enter into the fortress of the king of the north, and shall deal against them, and shall prevail." Now, this was Ptolemy Euergetes, brother of Berenice. He came with an army and captured Syria, and he seized the fort, which was the port of Antioch in that day. Now, verses 8 and 9, I'm, and I'm reading again. "...and shall also carry captives into Egypt, their gods, their princes, and with their precious vessels of silver and of gold, and he shall continue more years than the king of the north. So the king of the south shall come into his kingdom and shall return to his own land." Now, Ptolemy Euergetes, he took into Egypt his booty, 4,000 talents of gold, 40,000 talents of silver, and 2,500 idols. See how all of this has been literally fulfilled. Verses 10 through 13 now, I'm reading. "...but his sons shall be stirred up, and shall assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overflow and pass through. Then shall he return and be stirred up, even to his fortress." The king of the south shall be moved with choler or anger, and he shall come forth and fight with him, even with the king of the north. And he shall set forth a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into his hand. And when he had taken away the multitude, his heart shall be lifted up. He shall be cast down many ten thousands, but he shall not be strengthened by it. For the king of the north shall return, and shall set forth a multitude greater than the former, and shall certainly come after certain years with a great army and with much riches. Now, there was continual warfare between Egypt and Syria. And it was, and I'm not going into all the details here, but it's during this period that Israel seemed to make the wrong choice and found herself being made captive first by one and then by the other. Now, verse 14, "...and in those times there shall many stand up against the king of the south. Also the robbers of thy people shall exalt themselves to establish the vision, but they shall fall." Now, many of the nation of Israel were slain at this particular time, and they incurred untold sufferings that came upon them from both the king of the north and the king of the south. And finally, a king of the north will arise, and he will be the one 
that we're going to have to wait and look at next time. But he is the one that is the picture, the type of Antichrist who is coming. This is a remarkable section. We'll continue on with that next time. Now, friends, I trust we didn't bore you too much last time, but we were following along in a rather meticulous and verse-by-verse fulfillment of the wonderful prophecy that is given in this particular section. It reveals all of the different plotting and the strategy and the murdering and the hatred and the bitterness that's in the human heart as these nations warred back and forth, Ptolemy in Egypt and then Seleucus in Syria. And Israel was caught in between all of that. They seemed to have made the wrong choices and they suffered a great deal during that particular period. Now, we went into a great deal of detail. The book that we've mentioned, our book on Daniel, gives all of this. And if you'd even like more detail, I would suggest that you get one of the larger Bible encyclopedias like Hastings or ISB, International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, and read in detail this particular section here in secular history. And you will find that it's very marvelous the way it was so literally fulfilled. So much so that the critic, as far as I know, has never tried to say that this was not an accurate account that was given. What he said is that it was written afterward. Now, if you want to follow the critic, fine, well enough. He has a certain amount of scholarship on his side, but I think conservative scholarship today has absolutely demolished liberal scholarship with its bias and its prejudice as if assume that it had to be written later because they don't believe in miracles. Well, so what? Some of the rest of us believe in miracles. And therefore, we believe that this makes this a very remarkable section of the Word of God. Now, I want to begin reading where I left off last time. And we saw that the king of the north is Syria and the Seleucidae dynasty. Seleucus had been one of the generals of Alexander the Great. He took that section of the empire at the death of Alexander. And Ptolemy took Egypt. And these two warred back and forth. And I'm reading now verses 15 and 16 of the 11th chapter of Daniel. So the king of the north shall come, cast up a mount, and take the most fenced cities, and the arms of the south shall not withstand, neither his chosen people, neither shall there be any strength to withstand. But he that cometh against him shall do according to his own will, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land, which by his hand shall be consumed. Now, we are finding out why this is recorded and given in the book of Daniel because it concerns the glorious land. Now, the glorious land refers to Palestine, Bible land, to this land that God had vouchsafed to Abraham and those coming after him. Now, secular history records this victory of Antiochus the Great over Egypt, and it was a rather decisive 
victory, and it caused Israel to suffer immeasurably at that time. Now, I'm going to pass over some of the secular history. You care to go into detail. I've already made this suggestion. And there is a period of 125 years here that was literally fulfilled, but I'm not going to touch it. I'm going to read, though, verse 17. He shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do. He shall give him the daughter of women, corrupting her, but she shall not stand on his side, neither be for him. Now, this brings us up to about 198 to 195 B.C., when Antiochus the Great made a treaty with Egypt. And he gave his daughter, Cleopatra, to Ptolemy, Epiphanes, in marriage. Now, Cleopatra, you know, one of the old Saul questions, it's one of the typical questions that's asked, was Cleopatra an Egyptian? And, of course, she wasn't. She really was a Greek. She was a daughter of Antiochus the Great of the line of the Seleucidae. Now, will you notice verses 18 through 20? After this shall he turn his face unto the isles, and shall take many, but a prince for his own behalf shall cause the reproach offered by him to cease. Without his own reproach he shall cause it to turn upon him. Then he shall turn his face toward the fort of his own land, and he shall stumble and fall and not be found. Then shall stand up in his estate a raiser of taxes in the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he shall be destroyed, neither in anger nor in battle. Now, the isles that are mentioned here, the islands, that speaks of Greece and all the Greek islands. And that's where Antiochus the Great was beginning to move at this time, not only against Ptolemy in the south, but actually against Lysimachus over in the west. Now, and a prince for his own behalf, that would refer to another line, and that refers to Rome, which was beginning now to rise in the west and was beginning to move toward the east. In other words, the Romans exacted taxes from the Syrians. The Romans were probably the best tax gatherers and tax assessors that they've had until we've got to the modern day here in this country. And believe me, today we have the best system of collecting taxes that I think would even put Rome in the shade. But Rome began to arise, and Rome was building a tremendous empire, taxing the people that they were taking. The Syrians were beginning now to fall before the Romans. Now, there are many historical details which we could fill in here. And if you would like to get a book, and you'll have difficulty getting it unless you can find a minister that has it in his library or find it in a good second-hand bookstore, it would be Dr. A.C. Gabeline on the book of Daniel. And you'll find it very helpful indeed. be very much worthwhile if you could get that book. Are the coming prints by the former chief of Scotland Yard, Sir Robert Anderson. That is another book that you'd find extremely helpful in this period if you care to go into all of these details. This brings us now, though, to a very important juncture. He introduces to us a vile person, 
And that vile person was Antiochus Epiphanes, who was king of Syria and easily identified in history. Now, this is the prophetic picture that is given to us, and it was fulfilled in Antiochus. And here is one of those little horns that's already been fulfilled, the one that we had back in chapter 8, you will recall. Verse 21, and I'm reading now, "...and in his estate shall stand up a vile person." That's the way he's described. "...to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries." Now, this section is concerned with only one king primarily, and this is this man, Antiochus Epiphanes. I think most fundamental interpreters and expositors of Scripture consider this section to be a direct reference to Antiochus Epiphanes. I so treat it myself, by the way. And it does give a little picture type of Antichrist that is to come. Well, we're going to come to him a little bit later here. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes, he came to the throne in 175 B.C. He's called vile because of his blasphemies. He came to the throne with a program of peace. And that's just the way that Antichrist is going to come to power. He'll introduce the Great Tribulation with three and a half years of peace, And the world will think they're entering the millennium, but they're really entering the Great Tribulation period. Now, Antiochus was a deceiver, and he was a flatterer. Beware of that type. May I say to you that we don't need that type of minister today. That is the thing I think has hurt the church as much as anything. We need men that are not going to be deceivers and flatterers and butter up, folks, but stand in the pulpit and tell it like it is. And unfortunately, they're getting few and far between today. But thank God there are still a great many of them about. Now, verses 22 through 24, and I'm going to read these. And with the arms of a flood shall they be overflown from before him, and shall be broken. Yea, also the prince of the covenant, And after the league made with him, he shall work deceitfully, for he shall come up and shall become strong with a small people. He shall enter peaceably, even upon the fattest places of the province, and he shall do that which his fathers have not done, nor his father's fathers. He shall scatter among them the prey and spoil and riches, yea, and he shall forecast his devices against the strongholds even for a time. Now, the prince of the covenant evidently was Onias third, the high priest. He was deposed and murdered at this time by the deceitful devices of Antiochus when he came to power. And now let me keep reading here, verse 25 through 28. He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army, And the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army, and he shall not stand, for they shall forecast devices against him. Yea, they that feed are the portion of his meat shall destroy him, and his army shall overflow, and many shall fall down slain. And both these kings' hearts shall be to do mischief, 
and they shall speak lies at one table, but it shall not prosper. For yet the end shall be at the time appointed. Then shall he return into his land with great riches, and his heart shall be against the holy covenant, and he shall do exploits and return to his own land. Now, these verses describe the campaign of Antiochus and his victory over the king of Egypt, which brought him much riches and prestige. And when it says they shall speak lies at one table, verse 27, it shows that he's an unreliable liar. It also reveals that the conference table of that day would be very much like the conference tables today where nations meet. Treaties become a scrap of paper, and they become perfectly meaningless. Now, verses 29 and 30. At the time appointed, he shall return and come toward the south, but it shall not be as the former or as the latter. For the ships of Chittim shall come against him. Therefore he shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the holy covenant. So shall he do. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the holy covenant. Now, his second campaign against Egypt was not successful, and that was due to the navy of Rome, the ships of Chittim. He breaks his covenant with Israel, and actually some of the nation Israel betrayed their own people at this time. Verse 31, "...an arm shall stand on his part, they shall pollute the sanctuary's strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate." Now, he came against Jerusalem in 170 B.C., at which time over 100,000 were slain. He took away the daily sacrifice from the temple. He offered the blood and broth of a swine upon the altar, and he set up an image of Jupiter to be worshipped in the holy place. And this was an abomination that maketh desolate, but it's not the abomination. The Lord Jesus Christ in his day referred to it as being yet future, and he is referring to the abomination of desolation which Antichrist will set up and will probably be patterned after this one, of course. An image of Jupiter in a holy place. It'll apparently be an image of Antichrist in the last days. Now, verse 32, "...and such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries, but the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits." Now, there were a few of the nation Israel who played the role of a Judas... But many who knew God at this time, they were strong and they did exploits. In this period, God raised up the family of the Maccabees. And in 166 B.C., Mattathias the priest raised a revolt against the awful blasphemy, and he was called the Maccabee, that is, the hammer. And although not recorded in Scripture, I'm convinced that he was God's man, for that particular hour. Now, verses 33 and 34, "...and they that understand among the people shall instruct many, yet they shall fall by the sword, and by flame, by captivity, and by spoil many days. Now when they shall fall, they shall be hoping with a little help, 
but many shall cleave to them with flatteries. Now, this period lies between the Testaments, and it's a saga of suffering. There were many in this period who served God as faithfully and courageously as a Gideon, a David, an Elijah, a Jeremiah, or a Daniel. This was a great period. And if you haven't read anything of this period in the book of the Maccabees or even Josephus, or you'll find out it's a great period in the history of these people. Now, verse 35, "...and some of them of understanding shall fall to try them and to purge and make them white, even to the time of the end, because it's yet for a time appointed." The time of the end now leaps forward in prophecy from Antiochus Epiphanes to the Antichrist. And I believe now that we begin to move from history in that day to that which is yet future in our day. It was all future when Daniel gave it. But now he's moving over that which does not concern, you see, God's people or God's plan and purpose. We come now to the vicious and vocal volition of the man of sin, the ruler of the Roman Empire in the last days. Now, I'm reading verse 36. And the king shall do according to his will. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. He shall speak marvelous things against the God of gods and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished, for that that is determined shall be done. Now, at this point, history ends as far as we are concerned, and prophecy begins. The text passes from a vile person to a vicious character, moving over a bridge of unmeasured time. Antiochus Epiphanes, he was a contemptible person, but he could not measure up to the king described in this section right here through verse 39. He was an adumbration of Antichrist. And Antichrist apparently is not only going to rise in the geographical bounds of the Roman Empire, but the geographical bounds of the ancient Grecian Empire. I believe that this passage of Scripture indicates that. Now, as we've indicated in our little book on who is Antichrist, that there is the political Antichrist, the one that's mentioned here. He is a Gentile that's raised up in the Roman Empire, but there will be a religious Antichrist. He's a wolf in sheep's clothing. That's exactly the picture given of him. And he will pretend to be Christ, and he arises out of that land. Now, Antichrist is given many names. He's called, for instance, the bloody and deceitful man. And Dr. Dwight Pentecost, in his book, Things to Come, he quotes Arthur Pink in giving some of the, I think there are about 30 some odd names that are given to Antichrist. He has more aliases than anyone in the mafia has. He is called the spoiler. He's called the branch of the terrible ones, the profane wicked prince, the willful king, the idle shepherd, the man of sin, the son of perdition, Antichrist, the lawless one, and the beast. He's got quite a few names. Now, he is self-willed. That is 
one of the things that he's noted for. He shall do according to his will, and he'll exalt himself. He lacks all humility. Now, how contrary this is to the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember the Lord Jesus made this statement. He says, I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. Now, the little horn, and that's another name for Antichrist here. He's the little horn of Daniel 7, and he tries to be a big horn. He'll exalt himself. And how unlike the Lord Jesus that is. You remember it was said of him, Paul wrote, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, though being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, made in the likeness of man, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. But this one will magnify himself above every god. That is the way he'll be identified. In Second Thessalonians 2, 4, Paul says this of him, "...who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that's called God, or that is worship, so that he is God sitting in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God." This is the picture of him. And we're told in Revelation 13, 8, "...and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of the life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world." These are the marks. He's in a blasphemous rebellion against God, and it marks him out as the willful king, come to do his own will, he exalts himself. What a picture this is of him. And he is opposed to God. Now he'll prosper for a time until the indignation be accomplished. He is the typical representative of that which is against God. In fact, that which is our old nature. You and I have a nature that the Bible describes like this. The carnal mind is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Here is the picture of that old nature that you and I have, and that will be epitomized and be brought to pass when this one appears. And that will be humanism carried to the nth degree. And the carnal mind will turn to that individual. We are beginning, I say beginning, I think it's always been true, when men begin to choose their own rulers and leaders. What kind of man do they choose? One that's generally like they are. And that's the reason that you and I are getting such sorry leaders that are in the world today. You look around you in every department today. The leadership of the world is frightful. Well, they are the kind of folk we picked out. The Lord, you remember right here in Daniel said, I'll set over them the basest of rulers. Now, this is the Antichrist who will appear in the end times. Now, 
we're told something else about him at verse 37. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. Now, it has been assumed that since it says he'll not regard the God of his fathers, that he would have to be an Israelite. But, of course, that is not true. That statement could refer to a Protestant, a Roman Catholic, or a heathen. It could come from any of these places. After all, the man who headed up years ago, that American Association for the Advancement of Atheism, he was the son of a preacher. And Stalin studied in a theological seminary. This one that is to come will not regard the God of his fathers. Now, as I've indicated before, I think it takes two men to fulfill this office. And they're both presented in the 13th chapter of Revelation. The first one is a political ruler that comes out of the Roman Empire and probably the Greek section of the Roman Empire. But he is the one that doesn't have to be an Israelite at all. Now, I do think that the second beast that arises, a religious leader, and he imitates Christ, I assume that he will be. And then it says that he'll not regard the desire of women. Now, again, this refers, we believe, to the desire of Hebrew women to be the mother of the Messiah. He would not regard, in other words, the Lord Jesus Christ would be absolutely not only rejected, but would become the enemy. The Antichrist leads a rebellion against God and Christ. It's at that time, as the second Psalm puts it, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. And it says here, nor regard any God. Now, that means very plainly that he opposes all religions and worship except worship of himself. He is not only a believer in the ecumenical movement, but he promotes it. In fact, he is it. One religion for one world will be his motto, and he's that religion. He'll magnify himself above all, and that is the final fruition of the self-will of this willful king. His total ambition is self-adulation. Now, this is the frightful prospect for the final days of the great tribulation period. We are told in Revelation 13. Let me quote this for you, beginning with verse 15. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causeth all both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, that's the frightful picture of that day. You wouldn't be able to do business 
You wouldn't be able to go into a restaurant and eat. You wouldn't be able to buy a ticket on a plane or train without the mark of the beast. I tell you, that's going to be dictatorship with a vengeance. Now in verse 38, But in his estate shall he honor the God of forces, and a God whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. Now, actually here, the God of forces should more accurately be translated God of fortresses. Now, it is true that we're living in a day of which someone has written, mankind is increasingly making gods out of forces. Well, that is true today. But that's not what Daniel is saying here. Dr. Newell pointed this out, and I'm quoting him now. We know from pagan mythology that both Sybil and Diana are variously represented as crowned with multi-tiered crowns, plainly setting forth the idea of fortification with turrets, battlements, and so forth. Now, actually, what those represent, and I'm sure that you've seen in pictures of these heathen idols, these multi-tiered crowns with all kinds of fortresses on them. Well, actually, it means the kingdoms of this world. And he will honor the God that has the kingdoms of this world. And who is that? Well, Satan offered Christ the kingdoms of this world, and our Lord rejected his offer. Apparently, he had a right to offer it. And then Antichrist will accept the offer, and he becomes the world's dictator. Now, we are told that in both Second Thessalonians, the second chapter, verses 9 and 10, and in Revelation 13, 2, that Antichrist is going to accept worship, and he will have the world worshiping Satan in that day, and he'll become a world dictator. All the kingdoms of the world will be under his rulership. He'll be the first really world dictator. Now, verse 39, Thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strange God, whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many, and shall divide the land for gain. Now, this is going to be Satan's hour, and he's going to make the most of it, as he knows his time is short. We are told in Revelation 12, 12, Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. Now, Antichrist will be the pliant tool to do the will of Satan completely in that day. Antichrist will rule over many people and dispose of the property as he pleases. He is the willful king, and he is the final world dictator. Will you note now from verses 40 to 45, we see the victory of the willful king, this man of sin, the Antichrist, is temporary. Now, I'm reading verse 40. And at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, 
and the king of the north shall come against them like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships, and he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. Now, if you'll notice, it's the time of the end, not the end of time, but the time of the end. And the end here, of course, is the end that Daniel has had in mind all through this section, and that is the last days of the nation Israel. The Lord Jesus labeled it the Great Tribulation Period. Now, we're told that at that particular time, the king of the south, evidently a ruler of Egypt, and it's impossible for us today to identify that one. Actually, Egypt has not had a native ruler for years. And as God made it very clear in prophecy, he was going to put over that nation the basis of rulers. And he's done a pretty good job in that connection, by the way. But here's going to arise one in the end time. And he will probably be able to do what Nasser or no other ruler in Egypt has been able to do, unite all of Africa. And he will be coming against Antichrist, now the king of the north. He is, I think, identified here. He takes the place of the Seleucidae dynasty. And we believe that that is the one that comes out of the north, mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39, the king of the north, we believe represents Russia today. And Russia opens the campaign of Armageddon. Armageddon is not just a battle, but an entire war. And at the very beginning, the king of the north is eliminated because God moves in for the judgment of this nation. Now, this, of course, stirs up Antichrist. He has begun to move out of the west as here come two against the glorious land. I'm reading verse 41. He shall enter also into the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab and the chief of the children of Ammon. In other words, the entrance of Russia into Palestine precipitates the great crisis and conflict of the Great Tribulation period. When Antichrist enters Palestine, that's the glorious land, he finds that he's going to have trouble with Edom, Moab, and Ammon. And that is the territory, of course, where the sons of Ishmael are today, the Arabs. And he's going to have trouble with them for a while at least. Verse 42, He shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. Egypt and the king of the south yield to him, you see. And now verse 43, But he shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his step. You see, he'll have control of the wealth of the world. It won't be in this country, and it sure have been moving out of this country fast, by the way. But the wealth of the world will return back to that area where it was at the beginning. Babylon had control, Egypt had control, and Greece at one time, and then Rome. It's going to return back to that area. He will control the entire money markets of the world at that time. And Libya and Ethiopia surrendered to him. 
And that means he does have control of Africa. And then verse 44, "...but tidings out of the east and out of the north trouble him. Therefore he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many." You see tidings out of the east, and that means the Orient. Now, with its teeming millions, that great army that comes to the battle of Armageddon begins to move, and it troubles this world ruler. May I say they're all moving to the final assize. And at that particular time, there's no hope for the world, and certainly no hope for God's people except in God himself. Now, in verse 45, let me read this, "...and he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end, and none shall help him." Now, the seas here refers to the Mediterranean Sea, and the glorious holy mountain refers to Jerusalem. In other words, Antichrist at this time establishes his headquarters for world conquest between the Mediterranean Sea and Jerusalem. And instead of ruling there, though, he's destroyed by the personal return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are told again and again that only the coming of Christ would be able at that time to save any at all upon the earth because evil has taken over, and only Christ can deliver at that particular time, and he does come to establish his kingdom. Now, friends, we come to the 12th chapter of Daniel, and this is the conclusion of the vision that began back in chapter 10. And we need to keep before us what this vision is all about. The problem is that today... A great many just dip in here any place and try to make application in just any way they see fit. But beginning with chapter 10 and through 12, it's one vision. And everything has to fall into place or you certainly don't fill out the jigsaw puzzle here at all. Now, he said back in chapter 10, verse 14, now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days, for yet the vision is for many days. Now, there are three things there that are important. Thy people concerns the nation Israel. That's after the church is removed from the earth. It's in the latter days. And the latter days in the Old Testament is identified in the last days in the New Testament that has to do, as the Lord Jesus identified it, as the great tribulation period, or the 70th week of Daniel, as we've seen in this book. Those are the latter days. And Daniel was told, yet the vision is for many days. That is, it's going to take a long time for all of this to be worked out before you get to the latter days. Well, now, that's been a pretty good time since Daniel, by the way. Several years have gone by. The fact of the matter is, at least 2,500 years have gone by. It's for many days. And whether we're moving into the orbit of these days, I do not know. The church will have to be removed first. 
That's the next happening in the program of God. And we have no date for that. We have no sign for it. And anyone today that's going to try to set up a date, they are dealing with something that the Word of God doesn't permit us to deal with at all. Now, in verse 1 here, we have the great tribulation mentioned. Now, will you listen to this? Daniel makes it clear now what he's talking about. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince who standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time, and at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. Now, somebody says, by what authority do you call this period the Great Tribulation period? Well, by the authority of the Lord Jesus. He used this language that Daniel uses here. He says that this would be a period, a brief period, a time of trouble, there'd be nothing like it before or nothing afterward. And the Lord Jesus called it the Great Tribulation Period. So I take it that he knew what he was talking about, and that if we consider him reliable, well, that's what we will accept. Now, at that time, you see, it identifies the time that we're talking about. And it is the time of the end. Not only did we see it back in chapter 10, but we saw that it was mentioned to us over here in verse 40. And at the time of the end, and then we are given that in verse 35 of chapter 11, to the time of the end, not the end of time, but the time of the end. This is the end of this particular vision that's been given to Daniel, and it ends now with the great tribulation period. And this ought to be clear, I think, even to a theologian, by the way. I think that it might be well for me to quote someone else at this point. I'd like to quote Dr. Culver. I've referred to his book several times, a very excellent book, and I'm quoting now from him. Another expression at the time of the end, 1140, seems to indicate eschatological times. I do not feel that this evidence, taken by itself, can be pressed too far, for obviously the end of whatever series of events is in the mind of the author is designated by the expression, time of the end. This is not necessarily a series reaching on to the consummation of the ages. However, it is quite clear from chapter 10, verse 14, which fixes the scope of the prophecy to include the latter days that the time of the end in this prophecy is with reference to the period consummated by the establishment of the messianic kingdom. And I think that's a profound statement. Now, Michael is identified for us here. He is the archangel. And his name means who is like unto God. He is the one, you'll recall, that is going to cast Satan out of heaven. That's in Revelation 12, 7 and 8. And he is the one that protects the nation Israel. And he stands in behalf of Israel, as Daniel makes it very clear. 
And John, over in Revelation, outlines his strategy, and that's in the 12th chapter, and we'll not go into that at this time. Thy people... Now, again, let me emphasize, at that time shall Michael stand up the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. Now, that's positively the nation Israel. Otherwise, language has no meaning whatsoever. And the time of trouble is the great tribulation, as our Lord so labeled it in Matthew 24, 21. Now, the remnant of Israel is preserved. We find that given to us in Matthew 24, 22, Romans 11, 26, and Revelation 7, 4. We are told that a certain number was sealed in Revelation 7, 4, for instance. And I heard a number of them which were sealed. And they were sealed 140 and 4,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. And children of Israel, of course, means children of Israel. That means someone else. Now, will you notice in verses 2 and 3 here, first verse 2, we have the resurrection now of the Old Testament saints and of sinners. I'm reading verse 2. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, the remnant living in the great tribulation will be preserved. And that great company of Gentiles that are to be saved in that period, they are preserved. And those of the Old Testament who died that belonged to that remnant and the Gentiles that were saved back in the Old Testament, they'll be raised at the end of the great tribulation. Some, that is, these, to everlasting life. The Old Testament saints are not raised at the rapture of the church. At the rapture, it clearly states, only those which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Only the dead in Christ shall rise first. And we get in Christ by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, began on the day of Pentecost. It will end at the rapture. And that is a particular body called the church. And we're told very definitely in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, For as the body is one, hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be bond or free, and have been made to drink into one Spirit. Now, Christ told his disciples, who were members of the nation Israel, that they would be baptized by the Holy Spirit and put in the body of believers. John truly baptized with water, the Lord Jesus said, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days hence. Now, the church is raptured out of the world, and the Old Testament saints are not raised. Why? Well, because the time to enter the kingdom is at the end of the great tribulation period. When Christ comes, then the kingdom is established. Then they are raised, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're all going to be raised for the kingdom. They're going to enter into the kingdom upon this earth at that time. 
Now, if they were raised at the time of the rapture, they'd have to stand around with their harps. They could maybe have orchestra practice, I don't know, but they'd just have to be standing around with their harps for seven years, and I think that would get a little, you know, monotonous. But they're going to be raised at the end, which I think this passage makes very, very clear. Well, now let me move along here. Verse 3, And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. Now, God's servants in the dark days of the great tribulation, they'll shine as lights in the world. And believers today are to do the same thing, by the way. And the remnant in that day will be God's witness in the world. And they're going to turn many to righteousness. And the righteousness is Christ, because that's the only righteousness that God is acceptable. Our righteousness is filthy rags in his sight, not in our sight. We think we're pretty good. We look at each other, pat each other on the back, and tell each other how wonderful we are. And, well, we are just a bunch of dirty laundry, friends. And God's not accepting our works. He's accepting the righteousness of Christ. And that's only provided by faith. Now, will you notice verse 4, because we have here the sealing of prophecy. But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, even to the time of the end, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. Now, these prophecies were to be sealed under the time of the end. Now, this does not mean the end of time, but it refers to that definite period of time which in Daniel is the 70th week. And in view of the fact that we're in that interval immediately preceding this period, it's difficult to know just how much we really understand today, to tell the truth. We find a great many men disagree today on these matters, and all of us are very dogmatic, but I'm of the opinion that none of us have all the information. That will be opened up when it reaches this particular period. And that's the reason I think we need to keep our eyes upon one thing, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus. Keep our eyes fixed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we are told that many shall run to and fro, and I personally believe that this means running up and down the Bible in the study of prophecy. Many shall search it through and through. And there is a study of prophecy being made today that we haven't had in the past. I think certain great doctrines are developed at uh, particular periods in the history of the world. At the very beginning of the church, the doctrine of the inspiration of the Scriptures was pretty well established. The deity of Christ, redemption. Then as you move along in the history of the church, I think now we've moved into an orbit where there's more study of prophecy. And it says knowledge shall be increased. And I think it means knowledge of prophecy. It's true that knowledge has increased in every field today. But I'm trying to confine this to what I think primarily it refers to. And, of course, man has sure been running to and fro. But I think it refers to the study of prophecy. Now we have in verse 5 here, let me begin reading that. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, I stood other two 
the one on this side of the bank of the river, the other on the other side of the bank of the river. And one said to the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever, that it shall be for time, times and a half, and when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. Now, these verses return us to the vision of Daniel that he had seen at the beginning of chapter 10, the man clothed in linen. He was identified as the post-incarnate Christ. And two others join him here. One stands on one bank of the Tigris River and the other on the other. And to scatter the power of the holy people. That's a strange phrase. It may mean that the rebellion of Israel will have been finally broken by the end of the great tribulation period and that there will be a great turning to God at that time, which, by the way, we do not even see at this particular time. Now, verse 8, And I heard, but I understood not. Then said I, O my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? Now, Daniel was a witness to this scene, and he says he did not understand what he heard. Now, Daniel was puzzled, and he wanted to know how all these things he had just witnessed would work out. Verse 9, And he said, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed to the time of the end. Now, Daniel is reminded again that these things would take place in the time of the end and are temporarily sealed. Now, will you notice, we have the abomination of desolation before us now. Verse 10, Many shall be purified, made white, and tried, but the wicked shall do wicked, and none of the wicked shall understand, the wise shall understand. Now, these great principles of God prevail from Daniel's day to the time of the end, irrespective of dispensations. Many shall be purified. Those who've come to Christ, and not by works of righteousness, but according to his mercy. And the wise shall understand, because Paul said, "...the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God." their foolishness unto him. Now, verse 11, "...and from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away, and the abomination that maketh desolate set up, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days." Now, the importance of this verse, I don't think I could overemphasize it, as the Lord Jesus referred to it. He says, "...when ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in a holy place. He that readeth, let him understand. Now, that'll be the beginning of the great tribulation period. Now, for 1,290 days, the idol of the beast remains in the temple. This is 30 days, actually, beyond the three and a half years. In other words, the last half of the great tribulation which is 1,260 days, and for some unexplained reason, the image will be there 30 more days, which would seem to me to indicate there'll be an interval there before the setting up of the kingdom here upon this earth. Then verse 12, Blessed is he that waiteth and cometh to the thousand three hundred and five and thirty days. Now, another series of days is given to us here. 
with no other explanation than, Blessed is he that waiteth and cometh. Well, apparently we haven't come there. And again, these are days that I'm of the opinion, and as far as I'm concerned, no one has the interpretation of these. Why? It's sealed till the time of the end. And I think sometimes we try to know more than is actually given to us to know. Verse 13, But go thou thy way till the end be, for thou shalt rest and stand in thy lot in the end of the days. Now, Daniel is told, just as the Lord Jesus told Simon Peter, that he's to die. He'd not live to see the return of Christ, but he would be raised from the dead to enter the millennium. And he says, in thy lot, means that Daniel will be raised with the Old Testament saints at the beginning of the millennium. At the end of days, that brings us to the abundant entrance into the kingdom. And friends, may I say to you that that is the future that is before us right now. A future that says Jesus was coming. And the book of Daniel says he's going to come to this earth and establish his kingdom. Paul tells us, and the Lord Jesus himself said, I'm going to come and receive you. And where I am, you're going to be with me. I'm going to prepare a place for you. These are the things we should keep before us in these days. May the Lord richly bless you, my beloved.